but either way, good job, good job. Uh, today, uh, we'll be looking at um, Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to assume that's working, hopefully. Um, hopefully. So yes, Colossians chapter 3, particularly verses uh, 1 to 17. And the topic we'll be looking at is the regenerative work of God in the life of the believer. Um, the regenerative work of God uh, in the life of the believer. Now, uh, most of you, well, some of you may have seen me preach in the evening. Um, but of course, this is my first time uh, preaching before the morning congregation, and so uh, I do assure that I come preaching uh, with fear and with trembling, um, but uh, in all senses of the word. Um, but no, it is, a, it is a mighty honour for me to uh, be able to deliver God's word to you um, in the service, which when I was younger I grew up in, uh, more, more so than the, the evening service. Um, and so I do, uh, I do certainly pray, as I will in a minute, uh, that God would bless us during this time. So if you would pray with me. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to come into your house and to to sing your praises and to, to pray to you, to communicate to you and to hear your word preached. Father, I just pray specifically now that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, that we may see and we may hear and we may understand the truths and the verities of your scriptures. I pray that you may take my words and you may anoint them, that they may not just be babble before you, but they may in some way bring glory to your name. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Wonderful. So uh, today's sermon is actually um, hopefully going to be a pretty good one. This topic is uh, deep and it's, it's rich in theology. Um, and so I hope to be able to extract and to highlight and to communicate um, some things that we can certainly take away and, and have great use for. So if you would uh, follow me along in picking up in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also will you appear with him in glory. So the thing we're talking about here is with being raised in Christ. We see that he says, uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek, seek first the things that you are above. He then says elsewhere, you've been raised in Christ. And he's talking upon this topic of death and of life. Now we as Christians, we understand that, uh, that yes, we, are, we have died in a sense. We um, have died to the old self. Um, but here Paul is, is sort of communicating what we should then be doing given the fact that we have indeed died to self. He says, set your eyes on things which are above, heavenly. Uh, you know, I've heard the phrase before that uh, you know, those who are too heavenly minded are of no earthly good. But I sort of say that it's only those who are so heavenly minded there are any earthly good. Why? Because in a world that is caught up in uh, in, in postmodernism and in, in humanism, in this self-centered, self-seeking spirit, it's so temporal, so short-lived, 
so inward focused that it just drives people quite literally to destruction. But we as Christians, we as ones who have died to the world and now live in Christ, and as he says, who are hid in Christ through God, we must be setting our eyes on things which are eternal, on things which are above. It would be foolishness of, of me at the age of 20 to be so concerned with, you know, oh, I, just, I need to get this super really good job so that I can make a lot of money and so I can do this and buy the nice of this and get the nice of that, and, which is a very, how would I say, enticing choice for me as a, as a 20-year-old uh, in this modern age. But why should I do that when I know the riches that are stored up for me in heaven? When I know the unsurpassing glories of, of what heaven will entail and what an eternal you know, relationship and presence with the Son of God shall be. And so for me, it is more wise of me and more prosperous in that sense for me to fixate myself on things that will last for eternity. I shall not store up for myself treasures here on earth, but I shall rather do good works for the Father's sake that I may store up treasures in heaven. Things that are eternal, things that matter. And that perspective is such a countercultural perspective, irrelevant of what, whether you're from my generation or whether, whether you're from older generations. That, that kind of notion of setting your eyes on things that are eternal is so countercultural, so it's foolishness to the world. But that is precisely why we must do it. Why we must set our things on eyes, set our eyes on things that are eternal. So moving on to chapter, verse five, to eleven. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. As I was sort of just discussing, because, because we have died to self in, in the spiritual sense, of course, I'm alive here today, you're alive here today. But there is a real sense in which we have died. That corrupt, reprobate, just completely rebellious self has died. It was crucified, stamped upon the cross of Calvary when he substituted for us as our atonement. And because we have been raised, we're therefore not just raised into this state of, of justification, of right standing with the Father, but we are raised into a new and reoriented will. A will that no, no longer follows what the world wants to do, that, let alone our own flesh, that no longer seeks to break the commandments of God in its own selfishness and its own idolatry, but rather a will that is now aligned to the things of God, aligned to what is good and what is wholesome before him. It says you have taken off the old self and put on the new self. And the analogy that's sort of uh, driven or that's communicated a lot is it's like, you know, 
taking an old coat off a man and putting a new one on him. It's okay, but I think a better sort of understanding of, of what Paul's saying here is that it's not so much about taking the old coat off and putting the new one on. It's more about taking the old man out of the coat and putting the new man in it. Because sin, sin is not this uh, externalised sort of force that oppresses us and victimises us. In, in, a sense, in a sense, yes, it victimises us. But sin is, is not some separate thing from us before we were saved. It, it, is this, it, it was us. It was entwined with our nature. It was who we are. But now, through the regenerative work of God, through him killing us, in a sense, and raising us into life in Christ, under his shed blood and under that protection and provision and that cleansing, we now no longer are entwined and enslaved to our own flesh and sin. We are now, in a sense, free to actually do the will of God. See, before it was impossible for us to do it. But now we actually have the capability of doing it. And that is what, he, that's what Paul's communicating here. He is saying, you know, we must forsake these things which are of the old self. I mean, Paul talks plenty about how he struggles. It's as if he, you know, one part of him says the flesh is, is weak, but the spirit is willing. He has this dichotomy inside of his soul that at times wants to lean and wants to drive towards sin, and another time knows no. That's, that's of the world that is evil, that is of the devil. And we, of course, have that, and I fully understand that. I'm not saying that we're now sinlessly perfect by any means. We're not. But the thing is now that because of the new birth that has been wrought for us in Christ, we can now do the will of God. And we now have the freedom and the liberty by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually do what is right in the eyes of the Father. And is why Paul will eventually talk about being thankful for it, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But we now have the ability, the actual ability, to do the will of God and to partake in him, in his unfolding will in the world. Which is, I can tell you, is a very blessed, very blessed opportunity. And you see there at the end of that, sort of in the verse 11, he talks about, you know, there is neither no Greek nor Jew and uncircumcised and uncircumcised and, and whatnot. An interesting thing, which you probably wouldn't think I'd touch on, is the word Scythian. You probably don't know what a Scythian, uh, well, not is, but was. Um, the Scythians were a barbaric tribe, uh, sort of 8th century BC through to the 1st century AD. Um, and I won't bore you too much with their history, sort of in the, the northern Eurasia kind of area. Um, but the reason why Paul particularly mentions them, them here is because the Scythians were, and I, re- I seriously mean this, they were the most barbaric people you could possibly imagine. They were it was a culture of death and of just completely twisted evil. Unbelievable evil. It was just animalistic. But Paul is saying here that even if a Scythian be saved, he's no longer tied to that just devilish evil but he is now hidden Christ. Because that is what the new birth and regeneration does. That is what, when God converts a man, that is what it does. It drives through all layers of identity. No longer am I identified as, 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 as sinner just in and of itself. 
without, without God, yes, certainly I'm, a, I'm an absolute reprobate sinner. But because of Christ and his identity and literally his indwelling in me through the Holy Spirit, he is now the cornerstone of my, of my identity. I'm an Australian, sure. I'm a male, sure. My name's Daniel. Yes, but I am first and foremost and will be for all eternity a Christian. And that is the cornerstone of my identity, which is why at times when we, when we stumble, when we fall, when we sin against our God, we can know that that cornerstone, Christ, has been set in place in terms of eternity, yes, but in terms of our identity. We can come back and know this, this cornerstone will never forsake us because this cornerstone has been set in our identity. It is no longer we who live, it is Christ who lives. And so therefore we can know that we have forgiveness and that mercy and grace is abounding and overflowing every day. Amen. Let's move to verse 12. Hopefully that'll work. Yeah, there we go. You don't need to turn here with me, but I would like to actually... Actually, I'll do it after. I'll read, I'll read for you first and then I'm going to connect something for you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed uh, called in one body, and be thankful. Though that be thankful part we'll talk about. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd rather, I'd, I want to turn to Ezekiel 36. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. And it's talking about this part of us being you know, chosen ones, holy and beloved, and what that then establishes for us in our lives. Um, the particular part I'll be reading from is, if you actually happen to want to turn there, is 30, uh, Ezekiel 36, particular verse 23 onward. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, it's, I'm going to sort of exaggerate the personal pronoun here, I, um, or particular phrase, I will. Um, and this is God speaking, and I want to highlight it, but I want to show, show the intentionality of this passage and what I'm trying to connect here. So as I said in verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holy name before their eyes. I will take uh, you from the nations and gather you from all their countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so we see, we see there in Ezekiel 36 this passage that's sort of similar to, verse, uh, similar to Jeremiah 31, if you know, it, know what that's on about. This looking forward to when God will introduce this new covenant when he will no longer keep his people slaved, enslaved to the law and to the judgment of the law, but he will in fact establish in them the law in their heart when he will take out that heart of stone which is hardened to his will and to his statutes and rather put in a heart of flesh that is now reoriented to his will and to his statutes. 
And you see that he is saying, I will put up, I will, I will take out your heart of stone in your flesh and put in a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will clean you. And I will cleanse you of all your uncleanliness. We see what God does in our lives, he's sovereign over. We talk about the sovereignty of God and we sing about it and, and as we absolutely should. Because one of the most foremost things about God is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. It is he who is in control of this universe. A sparrow does not fall out of a tree outside of the hand of God. A flower does not raise up outside of the hand of God. Everything in this universe is orchestrated to God's will. And it is he who holds our lives firm in his hands. And it is God who brings us to repentance and faith. It is he who brings us to a place of salvation. Salvation is a sovereign act of God on his part to turn a sinner's heart away from their maligned and corrupt will towards him. It is a sovereign act in which he cleanses the sinner by applying to them the righteousness that was wrought through the spilt blood of Jesus. And he takes them from wrong standing into right standing with him and then he treats them that way. And so we hear, as we see Paul saying then, he says, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, etc., etc., etc. We are called to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so on, and so on, and so on, binding all of that with love, for love and without love there is, there is no point to it. We are called to do that because we have been called out of the world and into Christ by God. We are called to put on these things and to walk in these things, things which are right and which are good before God because he has called us out of the world and into himself because it is he who saved us. See, we, I, can tell you, I can certainly tell you from, from, from my mere 20 years in life, for the first 18 of them, I did not walk with God. For the first 18 of them, I wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, yes, many of you remember coming here to this church and coming and being raised in this church and coming here once every pancake Sunday when I didn't have basketball on a Sunday. But nonetheless, the point still remains that for the large part of my 18 years, I, I would have no problem professing that I was walking with God when in fact I wasn't. And I would have no uh, striking of the conscience by holding his name and then walking as if, as if I you know, was someone who didn't. And it wasn't because I was just a Christian who just sort of needed to pick up his moral act a bit better. It was because I was not saved. But by his grace, he called me out. By his grace at the age of eight, you know, sort of when I was about 18 and a half, he came in my life and said, enough is enough. You will no longer continue to live the way you've been living, Daniel Thomas. You will no longer continue to profane my name and to blaspheme my name every day of your life by carrying it and yet spitting upon it. And so the point that I'm trying to draw here is that we as followers of the Lord need to understand that we have been called out of the world. We have been called out of the world. It is because he has saved us that we now have an obligation and, and if I might say, the joy of walking in these good things and walking in his ways. You know, the, it can at times be, be easy for us to see the law as this overbearing thing but I mean for the vast majority of the time you know I happen to agree with David the law is good 
It is good not to murder. It is good not to steal. It is good not to lie, to commit adultery, to covet. It is good not to dishonour parents. It is good to actually follow the Lord God and to not make graven images and to take his name in vain. And so, for me, I see joy here. It is, it is a joyous thing to actually even have the opportunity to actually be compassionate, to actually be kind and have humility and be meek and be patient. Because before God saved me, I hadn't the ability to, I did not have the ability to do that. Yes, I can be kind, I could, I could you know, do a nice thing, I suppose, but kind and nice is not equal godly. One can be kind without being godly. And I don't say that to be snarky or, or whatever, but in all honesty, that's, that's the truth. And so now I actually have the opportunity to serve God because he has given me this new nature. He killed the old self and he raised this new self. And he has regenerated me and he's regenerating me. He's continuing to mould me into the image of his son. Knows why I shall be thankful for it. Knows why we should be thankful for it. Every day that we wake up, we have, uh, you know, I'm sure many of you agree, we have many reasons to be thankful for. We have, beside, beside the obvious things of, of being thankful for the fact that, you know, we right now are sitting in, in, a, you know, in a very lovely historic building, you know, praying to God and worshipping him and, and hearing me do my best. Uh, without the threat of, of, of a bomb dropping on us. I'm being really serious about that. Only this week in, in the United States were there 10 college students killed for the fact that they were Christians. A man intent on, on taking life for whatever particular deranged reason decided it would be a wonderful idea to go into a community college in, in the United States and to go into the classrooms and say, stand up, what is your religion? Christian. Bang. Where's your religion? Muslim. You'll just take the leg. Where's your religion? Christian. Bang. 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 Now you might think, oh, that's, that, that's weird that that happens in the United States. It's actually the first time it's happened in a very long time. But we might maybe remind ourselves that we still have brothers and sisters in, in the Arab world and in various other parts of Asia who th- face that threat daily. Who you know, at this very moment or in their time, uh, meeting in a house somewhere underground. They're meeting at the pit of night because they have no way of, of facing what we can have the liberty to do here. And so we have a very good base to be thankful for. But we also have the basis to be thankful for because of the fact that we have been spared from judgment. And this is the sort of smaller thing which, which I even admit that I have, uh, you know, I don't focus on enough probably. But I have been saved from an eternity in hell. You as a believer have been spared from an eternity in hell. Not just a, you know, a nice little trip there and, you know, you might get sort of singed by a bit of fire and then it's okay after that. But you have been spared from an eternity's worth of wrath on the part of God. And not only that, you have been brought into right standing with him and you now have the privilege to call him Father, Lord, Friend. Who would have thought, I can tell you how the Jews never thought that they would be able to call God their friend. It's 
why a lot of them rejected Jesus. Because how can you say that you can call God friend? But God is our friend and he is with us and as, as Karen said earlier, he will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. Though at times we may go awry and we may sin against him and we may turn our face from him, he shall never turn his face from us. Because the time that he did turn his face from us was when he turned his face from Christ on the cross. When Christ cried out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. But the Father had turned his face away. But he would never turn his face away from you. And that, that is why we can be thankful. To start to wind up. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is sort of the, how do I say, this is more the application kind of part. We see him say, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And, and you know, it, it's good and well for me to sort of get up here and say, yes, you need to be kind, you need to be compassionate and, and, and be humble and meek and patient and what else we got here, Forgiven, forgiving and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, which is all obviously correct because that's what's been written. But it's more about how do we bring ourselves to a place where we actually can do that. Because I don't know about you, but I certainly have to learn to be meek. I have to, be, I have to learn to be humble especially because I'm prone to be prideful. I have to be learned to be patient because I'm very prone, as my brother will attest to, to be impatient. You see, and so I have to learn these things. I, I am not, uh, and nor are any of us, I am not sort of transformed into this glorified state, which I can assure you we one day will be, upon that moment of salvation. I am justified before God and I am set right with him and he treats me that way, but I am going through this process for the next however many years God graces me with life here of sanctification where he is sanctifying me in the truth. He is covering me with his blood and he is transforming my soul day by day. Like I said, reorienting my will from, from evil and from idolatry, self-idolatry, to, to, you know, to him. And so... You know, through doing that, how do we actually do that? And and this is what Paul's saying. It's by by the way that we do this is we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching us, admonishing us, etc., etc., etc. As as you can see there, and we sort of you know you might be going well. Yes, of course we should read the word Daniel, obviously. And but let's let's sort of and let's think about it. Let's stop and think about it for a second. This this word it describes is living and it is active. It is God breathed, as Paul says to Timothy, and is profitable for teaching and rebuke and exhortation, etc., etc., etc. And so, when we when we come and read the Word, you know, un- understand this: understand that this is God speaking. Of course, in the Gospels, we have we have the words of Jesus in His life and ministry on Earth, but Jesus agrees with everything else that's written in here. When he when he quotes. Genesis uh, 1 and 2, you know, by saying, 
a man shall leave his mother and father and, and, and shall be joined his wife and they shall become one flesh. He is saying, I agree with what the Old Testament is saying. I agree with the writings of Moses. That's why I said to, to, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and others, if you, you, know, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. If you believe me, you believe Moses. Like it's, everything else in here is from God. Jesus, other than the things that he said, agrees with everything else in here. And so when we come to this, understand that, that we are getting what God wants to tell us. When I want to hear, when I want to know what, what, God has, you know, what God has told me, I'll sort of read this. If I want to hear the voice of God, I'll read it out loud. Because in a sense, it's true. In a sense, this word is living and it is active. Is like a two-edged sword. It divides truth from error. That is why not only do we, do we stand on this as our as our truth and and stand on this as the as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, but this is what will grow us. Accompanied by prayer, accompanied by corporate worship, accompanied by those very things that we as, as Christians uh, do and are necessary. But this this is our foundation because this doesn't change. And when it does, and when people do change it, that's where problems arise. And so, for us, if we immerse ourselves and, and might I say, submit ourselves as slaves to Scripture, coming to it not with our own sort of rosy-coloured glasses on and our own preconceived notions and concepts about what we'd either like it to say or what we think it should say, but we rather take those off and come in humility to the Scriptures and go, my will does not need to conform to the scriptures, but the scriptures, sorry, my, sorry my, the scriptures do not need to conform to my will, but the other way around. It's my will that needs to conform to the scriptures. Whatever, if, if the Bible says that Daniel Thomas, you need to be humble, I then don't have the right to sit there and go, that's a weekend thing, I'll just sort of leave that for the weekend and that's when I can be humble. Or I don't need to go, it's irrelevant about what I come to. And so for us as Christians, if we dwell richly in it and if we study this and treat this with, with the respect that it, that, it, that it quite honestly deserves, as it is given to us by God himself, and he has said, this is what I want you to know, then it will be profitable for us. And we will grow. Because the beauty of this thing is that it challenges and it convicts. It comforts as well, but it challenges and it, and it convicts. It has a very good and consistent and reliable habit of taking your ideas and shattering them and taking our false senses of, of, of reality about ourselves in particular and shattering them. And so if we can dwell in this, we, we will be sanctified and God will continue to work through us. And then we then see, and to finish that in word and in deed we should do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him. A lesson that I've had to learn and had to figure out very early on in my Christian walk, and I would say to anyone else, you need to figure this out very early in your Christian walk. But the question is this, what, what are you, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? When you wake up of a day, when you are going throughout your week and through your year, why, why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing, and there are times where I've had to honestly assess myself and, and ask myself this, am I doing 
what I'm doing, you know, in the name, you know, for God, or am I doing what I'm doing all for me in the name of God? Do you see the distinction I'm making? Am I doing everything, put it this way, am I doing everything in Jesus' name, or am I doing everything for me in Jesus' name? And so, you know, I've had to learn that very quickly to be able to go, well, what am I doing while I'm doing? Am I getting up every day and living my life in word and in deed and in thought, might I add, for the glory of God? Because see, as the, as the world, you know, the world continuously proclaims and as society continues to uphold this sort of attitude of, of, of engrossment in sin and in selfishness and idolatry, our reason for being, if I can put it that way, is very different. What I mean by our reason for being is, is what is our uh, reason for existing? What is our purpose for existing? Because the, the, the ethos and the philosophy of the world would say that, that your reason for being as a, as a citizen of planet Earth is the happiness of man. It is the advancement of self and it is the, the, the raising of, of, of one's own mind and intellect and, and fame and selfishness. That is, the, that is the spirit of the age. That is what the world will tell you your reason for existing is. This is why society is heading the way that it is. But what God tells you is that, no, your, your reason for being is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We as Christians, our reason for being is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever a very vast and, might I say, eternally different reason for being. And so may we remember that our reason for being is not self-promotion, self-advancement and self-gain through things like maliciousness and covetousness and idolatry, but rather our reason for being is to glorify God in thought and in word and in deed and to enjoy him forever because of the fact that he died on a cross, he spilt his blood and he then rose from the dead in all authority to confirm that. And he did that to redeem your soul. He did not have to do it. He did not have to do it. God could have left Daniel Thomas in his sin to go about being and doing what Daniel Thomas was already doing to then die and to then suffer an eternity of wrath. And he would have been completely just for doing so. But by his mercy and by his grace, the Son of God came down and died on the cross and shed his blood to save my soul and yours. And so for that, in thought, in word and in deed, we owe, owe it to him in a sense. And what I really mean is we have the pleasure of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And if you don't, if you don't know that, what I'm talking about, if you, don't, if you have not yet understood your own sin, if you have not yet understood the fact that, I'm not pointing out in particular, I don't know where every single person's at, but I think I'd be foolish to assume that everyone in here is saved. But if you as, as a person have not yet come to understand the fact that you stand as a sinner before a holy God and you stand in a place of, of judgment and of condemnation at this particular time, and if you were to remain in that or were to die in this current state, that you would face the judgment of God and would face his wrath. Then I, I, I stand up here not to condemn you, 
because I can't, but I stand up here rather to point you towards a mighty saviour who is mighty to save. You may be a great sinner, but I personally know a great saviour. You may have committed vast and, and many crimes before a holy God and may be in complete and utter wrong standing with him. But as one hand holds back the wrath, the wrath of God, the other hand extends mercy and grace to you. It's as if Christ stands there withholding for a time the wrath of God, which I can assure you will come, as Paul said will. And it's as if he at this current time stands here extending his hands to sinners, offering you mercy and grace which you did not deserve. And so I plead you to take hold of that hand because one day both hands shall be dropped and Christ shall step out of the way and the wrath of God will come bearing down on you. I say that not to judge you, not to demean you, but rather to point you to hope. Hope himself a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. May you pray with me. Father God, we we pray that you may take these words that have been spoken today and I pray that you may fill it into our minds and into our souls, Lord. I pray that we may not just just hear these words spoken, Lord, but, but they may fall upon receptive hearts. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Father, we, we stand before you here today understanding that we deserve nothing that we have been given. We deserve not this opportunity to praise you and to worship you and to, and to glorify you. We do not even deserve life itself. But Father, despite all that, we thank you for the fact that in your, in your mercy and grace and for your glory's sake, you came down to earth and did everything that we could not. You came and took our place upon the cross of Calvary, bearing the wrath of all those who would believe. And Father, we praise your holy name forevermore for that, that act of unbelievable compassion. Father, as we go into our weeks, may you be with us. May you go before us and stand behind us, Lord. I pray that we may walk not in our own selfish ways, Lord, and not in our own self-seeking ways, but we may wake up every, every morning with the fresh understanding that you alone are God and you alone are worthy to be praised. With a gratitude, Lord, that, that wells forth from this salvation which you have purchased for us. And I pray that you may bring forth from within us, through the Holy Spirit, a joy in the Lord like never before. Father, for all those who are falling under the, under the hearing of my voice, Lord, I pray that if they know you not yet, I pray that you may do a mighty work of salvation in their lives. I pray that you may humble them and that you may grant them repentance and faith that they may die to self and that they may enter into eternal life by the power of the blood. Father, we thank you for all things. May your name